The air we breathe, the soil we have, the water we drink. It's the kind of situation where you're just not merely a private actor. You're not sitting in your home, you know, ingesting whatever chemical you want, right? Like a train derails, it affects everybody around it and like could affect people hundreds of miles away, depending on where the water flows, where the wind flows, et cetera. And so this is an area where we ha- we should be really stringent about what we ask companies. We don't want to be impractical, but they have a, a re- civic responsibility not to cause pollution. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, we've got a special guest today. Uh, Joe Garvey from our research team is going to be joining us. Joe, welcome to the podcast. What's up, guys? Hi. All right. Well, <laughs> well, one <laughs> thing we're going to be doing on this show moving forward is, you know, we have great researchers on our team and we want to make sure that we have somebody on the show at all times who can field our questions as they come up for research and correct us most importantly so that we have to correct after the fact. Like you'll you'll get one such correction at the end of this episode on the organics uh, segment that we did on the last episode. So you know, whenever possible, we want to just correct ourselves in real time. And it also will allow us to get podcasts out faster because a lot of times we catch our own mistakes and leads to editing, yada, 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 longer than necessary explanation. We have also been listening to to too much Joe Rogan. We're taking notes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. There's a Rogan apparently has a, is that, is that the guy on Rogan? That's what you're going to be. Yeah. Okay. Let's just call you that. So I'm going to make spurious scientific claims that you're going to have to look up with about a minute's notice. All right. You ready? I'm actually going to start with one right now. I've got something to share. Let's go. Let's go. So this, this morning I took, I got, I basically was invited. This is a guy named David Sinclair who wrote this book called Lifespan. And he's starting this company uh, called Tally Health and they give you an epigenetic test. And I can explain what epigenetics is if it's not obvious, but essentially just says like, Hey, what is your actual age? And I've done a different version of this that tests your blood. This one's different. And I'm not in fact 39, Joe and Ricky. I'm 36 according to this test. So I'm really excited. I You're just a real spring morning. chicken. Look at you. There you go. Yeah, you still got 14 years on me. <laughs> I just ran the go. numbers and uh, that's inaccurate. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think if Ricky takes an epigenetic test, it's going to come back 77 year old, at least in her <laughs> mind. Uh, Probably. But, but uh, this is a process I want to take our audience because I know our audience really loves it when I talk about my personal, personal fitness and lifestyle stuff. Mm. But um, yeah, but they, th- I, I want to almost crowdsource my midlife crisis over the course of the next year. So I, I chronologically turned 40 in April and so I, I want to hear from the audience. Should I get a red Corvette? Should I do <laughs> MMA? I really want to know. I want, I want to get creative here about how to spend this time. So Yeah. I think you have to accept your own mortality. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Uh, we got two stories that, you know, honestly make me a bit depressed. Uh, text messages were released in the Dominion lawsuit against Fox News and that have attracted a lot of attention. Uh, I interviewed a reporter at the Washington Post about what these internal communications say about Fox's relationship with their viewers and the truth. But first, let's tackle this East Palestine train derailment and the resulting environmental catastrophe that potentially could be unfolding in Ohio right now. EPA is ordering Norfolk Southern to conduct all necessary actions associated with the cleanup from the East Palestine train derailment. 
more anger mounting in East Palestine. We're so far out and we still don't have answers. The train derailment dumped toxic chemicals into their town, upending their lives. Exposed an entire community to potentially hazardous chemicals. We need answers and we're not getting them. So this story goes back to the third of this month where a train derailed near East Palestine, Ohio, carrying dangerous chemicals on several of its train cars, but not all of them. And they ended up doing a controlled burn of the chemicals on board after the train was effectively off the tracks. And there was very little coverage at the beginning, but then on social media, despite the the sense that, oh, it's fine and this will just go away, a lot of residents were ringing the alarm bells and expressing concern about their personal health. They were sharing some of the really concerning signs that they've seen of animals that they that they own doing poorly of uh, film on, on like an oily sheen on a lot of their household appliances, concerns about the water, dead fish as a as a result of this chemical being up in in flames over their city and so this seems to be the kind of classic story of a disaster taking place a cleanup attempted and the ramifications looking like they could potentially in terms of health and environmental safety be much larger than what anyone really initially wanted to confront Right. And so I think there are like, as Ricky, correct me if I'm wrong, I think there are like almost three main questions, technical, but also policy and political questions. One is around the brake system that the train had. Two is around the detectors, these things that we call hot box detectors that are on the tracks themselves and whether those were working. And then the third is around this decision around the controlled burn and then just the resulting communication around which chemicals are where and are we evacuating? Are we communicating the data to to the residents? And it seems like those three things are coming together and people seem quite frustrated on the ground. So Joe, let's just clarify here. Is it 38 cars that derailed as a result of this? Yeah, so 38 cars derailed and then a fire ensued on an additional 12 cars. So there were 20 total hazardous cars on the train, 11 of those derailed. And so I'll just quickly get this out of the way because we're not going to spend a lot of time on the chemicals themselves that were spilled out because I think we could spend hours just trying to talk about the the relative risks of these chemicals and what we know and don't know, but we'll link to their descriptions of the chemicals from PBS and from Quartz. The chemicals that we that those uh, new sites identified are vinyl chloride, isobutylene, butyl uh, arcalate, uh, I'm probably saying that wrong, Joe, you can probably correct me if I'm wrong, benzene, you got it. ethyl hexyl arcalate, uh, ethylene glycol monobutyl ether, and what a lot of these have in common is some evidence that they either cause cancer, they cause infections, in certain cases, blood, bone marrow, immune system disorders, respiratory disorders. And obviously, the often the poison is in the dose, and that's part of what yep. the residents are trying to figure out is, well, some of these studies are like in, none of these studies uh, about these chemicals are obviously reenacting this situation. And so I think people are often really confused about what risks are going on. And I think they have good reason to be confused given the communication about this. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, there's a lot of competing claims about different symptoms that people are having. I saw Tucker Carlson the other night had um, a someone who said that they, he was coughing up blood and that was his sy- symptom. There are respiratory concerns with some of these chemicals, but certainly there's just so much like opacity over this entire situation. And it's so tragic to see these people have 
absolutely no idea what is going on with their own health long term. Um, certainly in the beginning, there was a, a an effort to make this as seamless as possible just to do a, a brief evacuation, then to tell people to shelter in place, which doesn't feel intuitive to me and also doesn't feel intuitive to a lot of the residents who felt like if this is really dangerous to me, why am I being told to just close my windows and stay in my home? Um, then the burn occurred and residents could smell the odor of diesel fuels by the 5th of February. It was confirmed that vinyl chloride was on this train. Then the governor issued an emergency declaration. There was concerns about a catastrophic blast that might occur on this train. And so they ended up draining it and burning the unstable chemicals. People were told they could return home on the 8th at that point in time. And there were different, different areas that they were more concerned about. So some people were told to stay at home. Some people were told to evacuate immediately. But ultimately, as time went on, just more and more red flags started popping up. On the 13th, they confirmed that at least like thousands of fish were found dead in ravines and streams. And, you know, that's obviously concerning if your drinking water is involved in the the local environment there. The following day, they confirmed that the trains were not deemed highly hazardous based on the criteria that's on the books legally. Then the following day, residents started to express a lot of concern about water. There were a lot of reports about like their pets dying of uh, someone had a pet fox that just ended up slowing down and dying people's chickens. And so, you know, that's what's happening in your animal that's outside in an outdoor enclosure in your home. That's hugely concerning. And recently, We've seen a few visits from some notable people, including President Trump and finally Pete Buttigieg, who today this morning arrived um, after a lot of criticism for waiting this long. Well, let's get to all that. One thing I, I want to rewind the clock to February 6th, Ricky, when you talked about this uh, controlled burn, right? We had a chance to talk to Dr. Andrew Welton, who's a professor of civil engineering at Purdue University, and he had some really interesting and alarming things to say about what he was able to gather from that controlled burn. Typically when you combust or, or incinerate hazardous chemicals, you do it at wicked high temperatures to take them all the way to carbon dioxide, water, and, and inert gases. When you see that black smoke, that's not incineration. That's incomplete combustion, and you get particulates that sorb things and deposit. One of the things that should be done is characterizing what exactly that stuff is and what risk it poses to people if they inhale it in their homes or at the playgrounds and other places like that. That that work hasn't been done. So that's concerning. You combine that with the fact that this 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 cloud plume that mm -hmm. came about because of this controlled burn was so massive that you could see it on radars uh, from the sky. So really scary stuff. Yeah. And I mean, and to be a resident at that point in time and to be told like, oh, we'll, we'll pay you back. We'll reimburse you for your hotel fees. It's just, it's super concerning. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I, there's just so much that we need to wait and see, but in terms of responsibility, it's being placed pretty squarely at the feet of Norfolk Southern, the train company here. And there are also allegations that the, company during this draining these these substances from the train cars ended up burying some of it in the soil there. Um, this is based on some reporting and also the EPA seems to have 
um, acknowledged as much in a recent letter, letter, but there's, there's more to be heard there, but that could potentially have its own whole set of consequences that are longer term because it's underground. It didn't just get burned off. It wasn't the short term exposure. We have no idea what that could potentially mean for the people that live there. Yeah. And Dr. Welton, again, talked about how one of the things that he's frustrated by is just the data itself about the cleanup uh, effort. Like part of what he's saying is if, if the EPA, if, uh, if this train company, if the state authorities, like sort of the three main actors involved here, were more forthcoming about information about the cleanup effort, there actually could be a crowdsourced effort from scientific experts. There's been a lot of talk about drinking water wells being tested and being safe. There's no data for that publicly available, and it's a government-funded effort, so it's unclear why taxpayer money is not you know, resulting in the disclosure of the testing results. There's a number of other issues with <clears throat> is the debris that was created during the fire that fell onto people's property, what is that? What risk does it pose? There's been no uh, characterization of that as well. So um, ma- there are many questions still. Uh, today, uh, and people are hopefully uh, having their questions answered. One of the easiest ways to do that is if the government just opened up the data and put it on the table, which they have not done in full transparency. I can't even tell you how frustrating this is when you layer on the the level of people saying in the government, this is fine and and we're fine and we've tested everything and just trust us and insisting on that. There's this video um, that came from this woman's kitchen. She had the EPA come and visit her and he went on to drink the the drinking water in front of her to prove it. We believe in science. So we don't feel like we're being your guinea pig, but we don't mind proving to you that we believe the water. Here's the Carolina. Here's to you. That's good. Yeah, so they're drinking the tap water there in front of this resident and I just can't even express personally how much this frustrates me, these platitudes of we trust the science and yet we're not going to tell you what the science is. I've heard that term being used so much as of late and that just seems to be something that we assert as the science is unchangeable, immutable. And I I mean, I just as a resident with how much unanswered questions there are, you're going to be drinking that well water. If you can't afford to leave that, that community, I mean, the average income there is around $45,000. If you can't afford to just pick up and move because there's been a disaster, you're going to be drinking that water for the rest of your life. So to have like the EPA waltz into your kitchen and just take a sip and say, oh, it tastes good and chuckle like that. I don't, to me, the optics of that are exceptionally frustrating. Yeah. And I think you know what? What's particularly weird here is is like there is a buck passing going on here. The EPA is putting the onus on Norfolk Southern to pay for all the costs incurred, and so the you know this is in, and basically they're saying like they will triple the costs if the company doesn't pay for the cleanup. But I think one thing that's tricky here is like this is a developing story that a lot of the most important work is going to happen right away. And then there's going to be a really long effort. And I think a lot of people who are on the ground are worried about that this is going to fall into a cycle, which tends to happen in environmental disasters where maybe there's like a lot of attention right away. And then people just kind of forget about it.
And I think that the residents of this town, given the the national involvement, like this is a railroad, right? Like so much of our yeah. even interstate commerce law in our country comes from the railroads because it's a classic example of when we need a role of the federal government because it's you know inherently something crossing state lines. And the only way to effectively regulate it is, which I, I think like maybe this is a good segment, the only way to regulate it is for the federal government to get involved. We've talked about the chemicals. We've talked about the uncertainty about them seeping into the drinking water, to the soil, to the air. This is a tr classic tragedy, the common situation where maybe even a libertarian like you, Ricky, would be in, 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 like interested in some form of regulation, which I'd be interested in hearing from you. And one area that I think a lot of people are focused on are these brakes. Like what's yeah. what's going on? Like from what I understand, Ricky, there are these air brakes, uh, which this thing had, and then there's a, there are more advanced forms of brakes, which aren't even that advanced that this could have had that maybe sort of could have prevented this tragedy. Yeah, it's it's very unclear. And I think this is a, a very murky aspect here. To me, I'm far more concerned with the human impact than um, the specifics of how this occurred. And it, 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 just because we don't know this and we can't necessarily know if these brakes would have prevented it. Um, but the air brakes are less efficient. That's what they have on the on this train. And essentially it had like a chain reaction. So if you put the brakes on, then it goes to the next car, the next car, the next car. And if you have a huge long line of, tr of train cars, then that takes forever if, to get to the end. And so there are more efficient brakes that can kind of very quickly um, just stop something from car to car to car. And so if you have a situation like this where, I mean, at the very least, it does seem reasonable to want them where there are hazardous materials. People are pointing fingers everywhere because back in 2015 in the Obama administration, he put in a regulation in place where you had to have these new brakes to have hazardous materials traveling, but you had to reach a certain threshold of what is deemed highly hazardous. And then Trump repealed that law and that no longer was the case. And so there's people pointing fingers at Trump. Then there's also people pointing fingers back at Obama because even under that original legislation, this train, as it was packed and as it was classified, would not have required these breaks in the first place. And we don't even know in the first place whether this would have saved this whole situation from happening if, if there were different breaks in place, because there seems to be a, an axle that was loose in the end. And whether or not the breaks would have rectified that is, is maybe unknowable. Yeah. Well, I do think it's still a human story, right? Like I think if, if we're talking about what lessons can we learn to potentially prevent a tragedy like this in the future, that's still a human story. It's about preventing anything like this happening again. And these mm -hmm. breaks that you're talking about, I think they're no, called electronically controlled pneumatic breaks, and they're not even that new. And so this is one question I had in reading over all of this stuff is that there are competing claims being made about how expensive are these things? How practical are they? I can only just go by common sense when I look at the explanation of what these breaks are. They are, uh, they send electronic signals to simultaneously apply breaks throughout the length of a train. Now, that seems like that should be a no-brainer with these things that are going, you know, super, super fast across state lines on, on tracks that probably themselves need to, you know, we need to probably spend a lot more attention on the infrastructure of our tracks, which was a big thing around the infrastructure bill. Like, like we're, we're sending these speeding, you know, very, mm -hmm. de very, very deadly without the chemicals, but then you start to bring the chemicals uh, into play. Uh, and the sort of state of the tracks that we have in this country, I'm like, all right, the ECP system that I just described, I'm obviously no expert here. 
that seems like something that we should encourage. And, you know, something you said is really important, which is the Obama administration did tighten up regulations on this, but this particular train would not have even fallen under that because there were only, from what I understand, and Joe, you may know the exact number here, there were only a few trains, uh, train cars that were, that had hazardous material in them. And by the definition, this seems like a loophole, but by the definition, this, this train wouldn't have classified as like, I forget the name, but like, like wouldn't have reached that sort of level where they would have been required even under that more stringent law. Yeah. Highly hazardous. Highly hazardous is what it's dubbed. Yeah. Um, there's also a concern about if you, if you make it cost prohibitive, which there are, there are competing claims because of course the industry has an interest in not wanting this regulation to be in place, but maybe a situation like this will change that. Um, and will change the way that suppliers interact with train companies. But there is a concern that if you make it so cost prohibitive to transport these these sorts of chemicals on train tracks, then people might start using trucks, which is less regulated and potentially also equally dangerous. And so, I, I mean, there's there's no perfect solution when you have to transport toxic chemicals across the country. But certainly, I think at the very least, making sure that the cars that that have hazardous materials on it are are held to a different threshold is completely reasonable to me. And I'm, I'm not like libertarian anarchist here. I do think that there Mm -hmm. is a place to say that. I mean, at at least when you're carrying something like this, that can change someone's life potentially or thousands of people around here, we don't know what's going to happen to them. And I I mean, at the very least cause just so much anguish and and fear because they, they don't know and they'll live the rest of their lives wondering. I, I do think that that's a place to say, you know, if we're if we're going to say that transporting this is is important and critical to our country, then we need to say that it's also important and critical to keeping everyone safe along the way. It could have been this community or anyone else along the line. One thing I think would be interesting, I was looking for this this morning and I couldn't find enough on this. It's just an, often what's helpful is an international comparison, like our European countries, for example, are requiring the ECP brake systems and at least anecdotally, it seems like they're both freight and passenger rail systems appear to be doing really well. So I don't know. These are very profitable companies. And this is a situation, I want to double down on something I said at the beginning, that involves the commons. So the air we breathe, the soil we have, the water we drink, it's the kind of situation where you're just not merely a private actor. You're not sitting in your home, you know, ingesting whatever chemical you want, right? Like a train derails, it affects everybody around it and like could go, you know, could affect people hundreds of miles away, depending on where the water flows, where the wind flows, et cetera. And so this is an area where we have, we should be really stringent about what we ask companies. We don't want to be impractical, but they have a, a re- civic responsibility not to cause pollution. But okay, Ricky, take us home on this very depressing story. What what happens yeah. next? Well, I just I want to rewind because I I said before that I I'm more interested in this as a human interest story at the moment, and that's only because it's not because I don't think that understanding why this happened, the mechanics behind it, the regulation that was or was not in place or could be in place is not totally critical to making sure that something like this happens does not happen again and does not happen to more people. But I think right now, while we have so many unanswered questions and we are addressing this today on February 23rd, I think 
just what we do know is that there are people that are struggling and suffering. And so I think just to finish this out, let's hear from a few residents of East Palestine about what they've experienced firsthand. If you're outside for more than 15, 20 minutes, you start feeling the congestion, heaviness in your chest. And I smelled it, that chemical odor that's, that's, that's in the water. So of course my heart sank, I'm freaking out. I start to shake. They're not sure whether to believe everyone or not. And they're concerned for their kids. They're afraid to drink the water. They're concerned for bathing their babies. I don't want to live in that fear of wondering, are we going to get sick or are we not? I mean, the damage is already done. We're going to see the repercussions of this for the next 10, 20, 30 years. So I think it's important to note that for some of these people, this could be decades of wondering, even if nothing does end up coming to fruition as a health consequence. And so I'm, I, my heart goes out to them and um, let's hope that the revelations end up being more positive than the worst case scenarios. So I've been following this Dominion uh, lawsuit against Fox News, and honestly, I've been commenting on it more in sort of more partisan news. But I figure, like, I know our audience really cares about the integrity of news, and and we try to give hell to any platform that exists out there that we think are showing issues of integrity. And so I, I figured I owed it to you as an audience to really do a deep exploration of what's going on in this lawsuit, in this case of Dominion against Fox News, in particular, some of the revelations that came out this week. And so I had a chance to sit down with Paul Fari, the Washington Post, and we had a really deep and interesting conversation about what's going on with this case. I think you'll enjoy it. Let's cut right to it. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Robbie. Let's back up for a second, this Fox News Dominion case. What is this case all about? Well, it's about uh, libel and defamation, basically. Dominion Voting Systems, which is a company in Denver, basically uh, says that Fox News, following the 2020 election, defamed the company and uh, basically made it part of a conspiracy theory to throw the election to Joe Biden. Uh, they basically have said that Dominion's machines and its software, its algorithms, switched votes, and this was a plot to elect Joe Biden at the expense of Donald Trump. They said it repeatedly on the air on Fox News via interviews and via statements by the hosts and what have you. Dominion, as you can imagine, uh, objects to this, objected to this, they first told Fox uh, numerous times, in fact, dozens and dozens of times, that they were wrong about this conspiracy to switch votes, that the machines worked perfectly. And uh, when Fox continued, uh, Dominion said, you're destroying our business and we're going to sue you. And that's what happened. They have sued and the case is moving forward. And just situate us legally right now. Where are we in the sort of evolution of this case? Because I want to spend the bulk of our time in, in what we just found out in the past week or two, but just procedurally, where are we? Yeah, so they are filing briefs back and forth. Um, the latest brief, which I guess we'll talk about, was a motion, a brief uh, in support of a motion for summary judgment. Basically, Dominion said to the judge in the case, find in our favor and just rule for us and we'll get it over with. Um, there's some question about whether that will happen, but that's uh, part of the process here. Fox has filed um, motions and briefs replying to Dominion. So it goes back and forth this way. And um, that's where we are at this point. Got it. So we have this filing, this motion for summary judgment, and 
because of discovery, you know, the process where Fox has to turn over critical documentation about this case, including text message messages back and forth between their hosts. We now have this, you know, treasure trove of information, or at least Dominion's lawyers have access to this, and they've now started to share some of that information. So what we're about to talk about could just be the beginning of some of the messages that we're aware of. Obviously, they're sharing some of the most salient and persuasive examples they have. What did we learn? Like, as you read through these, there's a lot of juicy tidbits, but pick a few for us. Like, what were some of the biggest revelations from these text messages? You have to, first of all, take the the, the bigger picture. The bigger picture, at least according to Dominion, is that Fox, its executives, Rupert Murdoch, the chairman of the company, etc., they all knew that what was being put on the air was, to use their words, nuts or mind-blowingly nuts or crazy or ludicrous, yet they still continued to put it on the air. And there is ample documentation of that, that uh, uh, Dominion's lawyers collected over a series of months through depositions and through discovery, as you mentioned, that proves or shows at least that they knew that this stuff was ridiculous, but they kept at it for a simple reason, because if they didn't keep at it, they were going to lose viewers to the competition in this case, particularly Newsmax, which had no qualms whatsoever about broadcasting these uh, ludicrous kinds of conspiracy theories against uh, Dominion. Got it. And so, you know, some of the some of these messages that you're talking about, I just I pulled a few of them. So internally, Tucker Carlson referred to Sidney Powell, who is the attorney for Trump, who is spreading these false allegations. Uh, Carlson called Sidney Powell a complete nut, uh, while Sean Hannity said in a deposition that the whole narrative that Sidney was pushing, I did not believe it for one second. But they were saying these things, and then they said in the deposition that they thought it was false. But how does that square with those the, the actual reporting of those two on the air? I think Laura Ingram had a similar internal message where she privately was skeptical, to say it lightly, of the claims being made about Dominion, but then was saying different things publicly, or at least having people on her show that were saying Yes, and, and that's, that's the distinction legally almost makes no difference. If you say it on the air yourself, or you keep putting on these people who are um, continuing to make these statements, you are continuing the defamation, you're continuing the slander and libel, uh, which is what Fox did. So uh, again, you're showing a pattern here of people knowing that what was being put on the air was unsupported, was in fact a lie, uh, yet they kept going at it. Um, And the reason this knowledge of the fact that it was a lie is important is because in establishing defamation, one of the things you have to show, if you're the plaintiff, in this case Dominion, you have to show is that there was awareness of the falsity of the statements that were being put on the air. You know, it's one thing for a journalist to simply make a mistake because he or she didn't know better. But in this case, Dominion's claim is that Fox did know better. And here's the evidence for it. Here are all the examples of people saying behind the scenes, we know these people are nuts, but um, let's keep going because the audience likes it. Yeah. And so you're talking about this actual malice legal standard. That's right. And so knowingly false or reckless disregard for the truth. That's right. Which of those two, do you, do you think they have, do you think Dominion has a case for either of those planks of the standard? Or do you think this is going to really hinge on knowingly false given the, the quality of these internal messages that they have? 
again, it, it, it's either or. Um, they can prove either side of that. Uh, yes, you don't need to prove both, to be clear. You don't yeah, need to prove both. It's one or the other. And, and essentially, they're kind of the same thing. It all goes to intent. Did you know this in advance? Did you, were you aware that what you were putting on uh, publishing, in my case, uh, printing, uh, was false and you did it anyway? Well, that's a problem. And that's what the standard for defamation is, according to the standard set by the 1964 ruling by the Supreme Court in New York Times versus Sullivan, the famous case that established for all of the media, um, the standards you must meet to to prove uh, defamation. Dominion is is you know relying on uh, this to say, look, we are proving it. You know what's interesting about this? There have been lots and lots of defamation cases that they had to uh, prove by increments, by inference, by assumptions and presumptions in what the the defendant was doing. In this case. They've got flat out, you know, naked statements uh, of the intent and the knowledge. So it's a it's a whole different kind of case, and it kind of shocks people in a way. And so you have the court, the legal courts, and then you have the court of public opinion. Mm. And I think there's a lot of stuff in here that's rather inconvenient for Fox, in particular. It seems from these internal messages that their primary concern was losing audience to places like Newsmax that were making these extreme claims. And it seems, you know, Fox owner Rupert Murdoch said, getting creamed by CNN, guess our viewers don't watch it, talking about their own network. And then there was this whole back and forth between internal personalities about news, uh, Newsmax stealing their coverage, even by people who, you know, either at the time or later acknowledged that there was no basis for these claims. So it, it goes to motive. Like, why would they spread lies? Well, they were, they had an audience that was expecting these lies from them. Right. So they felt like if they didn't feed the beast, they would lose it. And then there was this whole, oh, so maybe I'll pause there. Cause there was this other, there was this rather intrepid internal reporter who started fact-checking Trump. <laughs> I want to get to that. But yes. before we get to that, you you have anything to say about this whole, this dynamic, this competitive dynamic? Yeah, well, you know, in some sense, um, Fox uh, created the Frankensteinian monster that turned on Fox. Trump, for months before the election, was saying, the only way I'll lose is by fraud. And he was at least consistent because he said it from election day on. The audience, in some sense, was primed to hear that message um, because it had been aired on Fox so often. And, you know, the audience for Fox tends to gravitate toward Trump and conservatives. So there's an alliance uh, of sorts there. But they were primed to hear it. And uh, when they started not to hear it on Fox, they began to seek it out through other channels and other sources, in this case, mostly Newsmax. And the ratings change was rather significant by January, you know, some uh, six weeks or so into, maybe eight weeks into uh, this whole process, uh, Newsmax, you know, miraculously was beating Fox in the ratings. Now, you got to understand how, you know, how much of a change that is. Fox uh, leads uh, every news network um, and has for years. And for Newsmax, which was, uh, you know, a, a, a just a, a rounding error in terms of the ratings of, of uh, cable TV, cable news, 
was suddenly the number one station in cable news as a result of this massive audience shift. And Fox saw it coming, you know, after right after November 3rd and Election Day. And that was the dilemma. That was the squeeze they were under. What to do yeah. about it. Yeah, and I think the most revealing part of this whole thing was this instance where Trump tweeted about Dominion and said, you must see Hannity take down of Dominion. So it gets right to the the issue of this very company and the very liable the the very case that we're talking about here, and there is this correspondent Jackie Heinrich, who started fact checking Trump. What happened next? Because I think this is very revealing. <laughs> like what's happening well, internal to this company? I mean, I mean to summarize it uh, as swiftly as possible, she basically said there's no evidence for his claims or these claims of election fraud. We see it, we haven't seen it. She put it out in a tweet. And this sent a shock through, shockwave through the offices at Fox News in New York. Uh, Tucker Carlson was just crazed about it and said, you can't do this. We have to fire her. You start doing this, you'll destroy the brand that we have built for 25 years. This is, you know, a dagger right at our hearts. And uh, he sent this to Suzanne Scott, the, the CEO of Fox News. And um, the next day, we don't know exactly what happened, but Lo and behold, that tweet by Jackie Heinrich was uh, was deleted. So, um, you know, the... Yeah, I wonder the, why. Yeah, we could surviving. <laughs> yeah, you can. You can. You well, can take well, let me guess. read you. Yeah, let me read you this internal message. So Carlson said, please get her fired. It needs to stop immediately, like tonight. It's measurably hurting the company. The stock price is down. Not a joke. So I think this is important language from Carlson because I think often the critique of Fox News, especially during the period of Ailes, Roger Ailes, was that it's this ideological beast and it's really about furthering the Republican Party mission. Now, what we're seeing, and this is not mutually exclusive with an ideological mission, but we're seeing as a a sheer dollars and cents mission here where they're like, look, like regardless of whether this is good or bad for the party, their primary concern in these internal messages that are being released is for their bottom line. Yeah, that's that. I think that's exactly the case. It, it's not about Trump. It's not about you know Biden. It's not about democracy. It's about Fox News, and that's the you know the prime imperative: uh, protect the mothership and protect the brand, as uh, as I think Tucker Carlson put it at one point. And um, there was another episode where um, the uh, Washington bureau chief at the time, Bill Salmon, uh, also was calling into question and. He got a, a stern talking to from Suzanne Scott. Um, he's like, we cannot indulge what effectively was news and journalism and fact gathering and truth. We cannot indulge that when you know our butts are on the line here and our viewers are mad at us. They are literally mad at us for reporting something that our viewers don't want to hear. So became far more than, uh, you know, uh, but no more important uh, an imperative than protecting Fox News itself. Right. Well, this may be like beyond your pay grade, but I, I want to bring it back to the legal standard here. So, you know, we talk about Fox and who knows, we could speculate about whether this in any way affects their standing with their viewers. I'm not holding my breath, but the What's fascinating to me is, from a legal perspective is, has been there's been this right-wing effort to open up, as Trump said, open up our libel laws and gut some of the protections from Times versus Sullivan. And Gorsuch and Thomas have been on record in the court 
in various opinions, asking the court to rethink the actual malice standard. So on the one hand, you've got certain elements of the right wing saying, all right, let's actually gut free speech protections. So that would be the very protections that Fox News is trying to hide behind right now. You, you, um, you got it. I mean, strange bedfellows, eh? Um, you forgot yeah. one. Uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida uh, held a, a panel discussion a couple of weeks ago where basically that was the thrust. How do we get rid of these burdensome uh, rules uh, and legal standards that prevent people from suing the, the news media for reporting uh, things that we, if we public officials don't particularly care for. So now you're in a situation in which Fox News, which has been relatively loyal to Ron DeSantis and um, Donald Trump, is invoking the very standard to protect itself against Dominion's lawsuit that Trump and DeSantis and Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas want to get rid of. It's an odd and perverse outcome of all of this. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because there's a reason why in this country, like I, I like the fact that we protect speech the way that we do in this country by and large. So I think even even from my perspective, there's a part of me that's like, all right, I like the fact that you can, like we have a an arena, like the balance that we that we have or we try to strike in this country is that we want to make it safe to be wrong when you are wrong in good faith. That's right. That's kind of how I see it, right? Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly it. In, in other words, the, the First Amendment protects my right and your right and Fox News's right to be wrong. It doesn't protect, and this is where New York Times versus Sullivan comes in, it doesn't protect somebody who's going to speak untruthfully and knows they're speaking untruthfully. You can't lie about someone and defame them and cause them injury or damage as a result of uh, knowing that your statement is incorrect. Yeah. But from a journalistic standpoint, um, you know, New York Times versus Sullivan is a gift to the Constitution and a gift to journalism. We know so much more. We have much more debate. It's much livelier. It protects the Washington Post as much as it protects Fox News and bloggers and people on Facebook and everywhere. So, you know, we should be praising the wisdom of the Supreme Court in 1964 for this. It's, it's made America a, a land of free speech. Uh, but again, yeah. there's this particular carve-out, which legally you can't get away with. Right. Yeah, and it's important to go back to before Times versus Sullivan. You had public officials successfully suing critics, including a lot of segregationists who were stifling dissent against their heinous practices. And so this, there is a reason to keep these, these laws in place. You know, Fox, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the final word on Fox because in their filing, they said, quote, freedom of speech and freedom of the press would be illusory if the prevailing side in a public controversy could sue the press for giving a forum to the losing side, end quote. And they're essentially accusing Dominion of cherry picking, quote, stripped of context. And so for our listeners who are like, well, you know, you could have, you know, Lost Debate does this. We, we're a debate show. So if we have one person on one side, one person on the other side, we're not responsible for, for everything anybody says, maybe. That's that. Right. That's the sort of, I guess, the, the the steel manning, the best steel manning I could do here. But tell yeah. me, I don't watch Fox News every day. I didn't watch the the entirety of this coverage, so I'm relying upon people who are summarizing it. Tell me, what what's your sense of whether there was any sense from Fox that these claims on air that these claims were false, and whether they they did any fact checking of their own guests on this kind of stuff? 
Well, I mean, Fox's basic position is just as this conversation is protected by the First Amendment and uh, and Sullivan, uh, the Sullivan Standard too, uh, our reporting and our commentary on the presidential election is also protected. We didn't say that these things were true. We simply put them on the air and allowed people to judge for themselves. And that might be the distinction that's a little bit too much for a, you know to a successful defense but that is their defense that we put on these things not necessarily believing them uh and no viewer would mistake them uh as being anything more than reporting and commenting on the biggest issue of the day and by the way it was the biggest issue of the day mm-hmm. was the election stolen was democracy undermined you can't get a bigger issue than that and that's what Fox is saying. Uh, within within our, our, you know, legitimate responsibilities and capabilities as a news organization to comment and report, we did what was right. Yeah. Well, I think just to situate it again for our listeners as we send off this story, you've got a couple of possibilities in court that could be playing out early. One is, a, you know, if you're Fox, you're trying to get a motion to dismiss, essentially saying that Dominion doesn't have a claim that's legally remediable. That's very unlikely that that, will, that such a motion would ever be granted. They might have even already filed that and it's dismissed. The flip side of that is what Dominion's trying to do, which is motion for summary judgment, essentially saying no trial, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Right. The claims here are so rock solid and beyond dispute that we don't need a trial. My sense is if you're Fox, I'm going to give you a provocative hot take. Maybe this will be what I leave you with. If you're Fox, this is $1.6 billion. That's a lot, but they can afford it. That's bad, but potentially as bad is actually this thing going to trial where all these things that we just are describing will play out in court. Potentially, I don't know what the rules are about video and all these types of things at trial, but these are things that could come out in court and be where people are under oath and will have to explain themselves even further What's your sense of how this plays out moving forward? Well, it's it's probably unlikely that uh, the judge will grant summary judgment, although I don't know. Who knows uh, what uh, what will go on? Um, but I think you're right. I don't think Fox wants to see this in court day after day, um, you know, being covered by everybody looking in on their dirty laundry. They have challenged the notion that this $1.6 billion damage uh, request by Dominion has any basis in reality. And part of that analysis is Dominion itself, the entire company, isn't even worth $100 million. I mean, based on what uh, Mm. the hedge fund that bought it a few years ago paid for it. So for them to claim $1.6 million in damage is, is absurd. But um, or a billion, sorry, yeah, billion. A billion, right. So, so uh, yeah. they've challenged that uh, basis. But I can't predict and I don't know what their legal strategy is. They have another filing, a reply brief coming on Monday, and so we'll know more then. Yep. All right, Paul. Well, well, thanks for being with us. This is super, super fascinating, super helpful. And wow, what a case. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. Maybe we'll have you back on if, if something breaking happens. Thanks so much. This is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone.
All right. Voicemails. Let's go to our first. Hey, Ricky and Robbie. Huge fan of the show. Um, when you talked about the deep fake artificial intelligence things, uh, I think you're overall impressions were that it should not be partisan and encouraging the government get, getting involved. Um, I'm actually going to push back on that a little bit for a couple of reasons. So one, um, while it may not be clear what the Democratic versus conservative position is, the libertarian position should always be less government regulation, not more. And second, if the government gets involved in saying things could be uh, a deep fake, we've seen historically that hurts conservatives more most recently uh, in a very similar situation with misinformation. I think if you would have asked folks five or 10 years ago, their thoughts on misinformation, they would have said, well, geez, who could, who could possibly be against suppressing misinformation? Yet we saw that potentially uh, the Hunter Biden laptop, which ended up being true, but not being allowed to appear on uh, social media platforms and, and news uh, for a while definitely hurt conservatives in, in the elections. And similarly, I think you get a situation like this where a, a videotape could appear uh, uh, that you argued would swing an election, but if the videotape is against uh, Democrats, I have a much stronger feeling that the media will say, well, we can't confirm whether or not it's a deep fake or not, so let's just go ahead and wait, versus on the conservatives, historically the media would would not. I think there's an in-between world where you you maybe don't make it criminal in all cases, but you give a civil action. like the, And so basically you put it in the hands of individuals to enforce, you know, whatever the deep fake law is. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's one option. I think the second part though is I'm still in favor of criminal liability. I think, I, I think I've been, I'm, I'm still trying to figure this issue out, but I'm still in favor of criminal liability until I can hear convincing arguments specifically naming deep fake use cases that couldn't be accomplished without the deep fake technology. Because to me, it's like, it, it seems like such a downside for any potential upside that could be captured by any other technology. So that's kind of where I am right now. I, although I think I'm still evolving on this issue. Yeah, I'm, st I'm definitely still evolving too. And that's a really good point because I, I, I mentioned before that you could just say something is not real, that totally is real and investigative journalism or unflattering political moments. If you've, if you give the power to authority figures to decide what they do and don't do, that's actually legitimate. Um, that could go very, very sideways very quickly, as was the case with the New York post articles. That is a good example of something that does turn out to be more substantial than was initially claimed and because the levers of power were were held by social media companies. I mean, I did advocate for social media companies to build this technology. And so I do think that there is a huge question. Um, but I do think the libertarian view on this is less regulation, but not none. And right now we're almost at none. And I think this is a great test case for why it's important to have a federalist system and to have different states trying out different things to see if any of these early experiments, I think we had what California and Texas and Virginia, I want to say, have all have mm -hmm. different versions of deep fake laws to see what actually is effective. This is this is such an important new industry that I think that we would do well to just experiment with some sort of regulation. And we also got several voicemails about our recent segment about organic foods. And so we are going to make a quick correction here. 
we said organic food doesn't have pesticides, and that's actually inaccurate. Organic food doesn't have most synthetic pesticides, and the emphasis is on synthetic, which is a word that I that we didn't use in that segment. It has other pesticides that are permitted by certain agricultural authorities, in our case, the USDA. And so according to the USDA, quote, natural or non-synthetic pesticides are allowed by the National Organic Standards. These same standards prohibit most synthetic or man-made pesticides. So we said no pesticides. So that was inaccurate. And this uh, prompts me to mention something because like in in some of the, uh, in the messages that we received, or at least one of them about that segment, uh, a, a listener helpfully pointed us to some resources that they have on certain scientific news, et cetera. So one thing we're going to try to do is use our Twitter account more often to preview stories that we're going to do the next day. Now, we can't always do this because sometimes we respond to breaking news. Uh, but Joe here and members of our research team, what we're going to do is the day before we do an episode, we'll just tweet out, hey, tomorrow we're covering blank, blank, and blank, or we're planning to. And you should follow us on Twitter at, at the Lost Debate. And just keep an eye on those. And then you could just reply to the Twitter feed and say, hey, I, I had this article I read or I like this source or whatever. And you could even reply. I think about the hospice voicemail that we got a while ago from uh, a loyal listener. And I think about that a lot in the sense that so many of you work in industries that we're going to talk about. So you could even reply and be like, hey, I work in this industry and I actually have something interesting to say. And depending on the timing, we could either get in touch with you before the segment or after the segment, exchange messages. You know, we can't always do it, but I think it could help improve because I'm so impressed by the experience of our audience. And your the, the reason why you listen to this podcast is because in many ways you're experts and news junkies because this is a podcast where people are very curious. And so long story short, follow at The Lost Debate on Twitter. Uh, Joe and our research team will preview stories whenever possible before we do them on that Twitter account the day before. And you could reply to that and send us any resources that you have. And, and I think it can help add to the breadth and depth of the stories that we do. And one final announcement from our show here at The Lost Debate, the Desi Crime Podcast, um, which is a true crime podcast that concentrates around South Asia. If you are interested in listening to a YouTube exclusive that is on their YouTube page and will not be on their regular podcast feed, they have a story of a woman who commits a murder but apparently doesn't remember how it happened. And so go and check out the Desi Crime YouTube channel to listen to that episode if you're interested. Thank you, Joe, for joining us. I want to thank our experts for helping to layer in our stories. Thank our listeners. Uh, we'll be right back Tuesday with another episode of The Lost Debate. Thank you. Lost Debate is the flagship show of The Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support and video editing by Julia Waldman. Editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Dean Metherell. 